English law in the Anglo-Saxon period. The Kingdom of England, being a very ancient kingdom, wrote Sir Matthew Hale in his History of the Common Law, has had many vicissitudes and changes, especially before the coming of King William I, under several either conquests or accessions or foreign nations. For thou, the Britons were, as is supposed, the most ancient inhabitants, yet there were mingled with them, or brought in upon them, the Romans, Picts, the Saxons, the Danes, and lastly, the Normans, and many of those foreigners were, as it were, incorporated together and made one common people and nation, and hence arises the difficulty, and indeed moral impossibility, of giving any satisfactory or so much as probable conjecture touching the origin of the laws. In spite of this difficulty, however, we do have some of the laws of the Saxon kings, beginning with Ethelbert, the first Christian king of England, and it is possible to trace the influence of the Christian faith upon the laws enacted by these kings as the centuries pass. Indeed, a careful study of the sources that we have demonstrates beyond doubt the truth of Hale's comment that the growth of Christianity in this kingdom and the reception of learned men from other parts, especially from Rome, and the credit that they obtained here, might reasonably introduce some new laws and antiquate or abrogate some old ones that seemed less consistent with the Christian doctrines, and by this means not only some judicial laws of the Jews, but also some points relating to, or bordering upon, or derived from, the canon or civil laws, as may be seen in those laws of the ancient kings, Ina, Alfred, Canutus, etc., collected by Mr. Lambert. Christianity came to Britain during the first century, brought here probably by Roman soldiers. With the fall of Rome and the exodus of the Roman legions, however, Britain was open to invasion by the heathen. Without Roman help and cut off from the rest of the Christian world, the British were pushed back into Wales and Cornwall by the invading Jutes, Saxons and Angles. England was settled by pagans who knew nothing of the Christian faith. In 597, however, Augustine landed in Kent with his Christian mission. Ethelbert, king of Kent, although a pagan, had married a Frankish Christian princess who kept her faith, and as a result, Augustine's mission was not opposed. Ethelbert was himself eventually baptised, and it is from his conversion that we can begin to trace the development of English common law. According to J. M. Wallace Handrell, when the Pope reminded Ethelbert of the example of Constantine and Queen Bertha, and that of Helena, as he also reminded other kings and queens, he meant it to be understood that the new convert was entering the family of Catholic kings of whom the emperor was the father. Papal and imperial correspondence of the period leaves no doubt about this. He assures Bertha that Bonavestra, your virtues, have been reported not merely in Rome, but even in Constantinople, where they have reached the ears of the Serenissium Principem, the emperor. Politically, this might mean little or nothing, but one certain consequence would be that the new convert would enter into the tradition of written law, of which the emperor was the fountainhead. Wallace Handrell goes on to explain that this is one reason why Ethelbert's laws must be dated after his conversion, 
law books were a Roman, a specifically Christian Roman gift to the Germanic kings. Ethelbert's Laws, the earliest document written in the English language, deals almost exclusively with monetary compensation payable to victims of crime or injury. The very first law deals with sacrilege. Theft of God's property and the church's shall be compensated twelvefold, a bishop's property elevenfold, a priest's property ninefold, a deacon's property sixfold, a clerk's property threefold. Breach of the peace shall be compensated doubly when it affects a church or a meeting place. The Pope, when he heard about the heavy compensation, insisted that simple restitution was all that was required. This was equally in error. For theft, the Bible demands restitution of between a fifth and fivefold. Leviticus 6.5, Exodus 22.1 Of interest in regard to this is the fact that Ethelbert himself only required ninefold restitution for theft of his property. Apart from this opening clause, there is nothing overtly Christian or biblical in the content of the law code. Perhaps the main failure, and this is a failure of all the Anglo-Saxon law codes, including Alfred's, was the readiness to substitute the payment of a man's wergild, or blood price, as compensation for murder rather than the death penalty. This may seem incredible to modern readers, but in the context of society as it then existed, it had an ameliorating effect by limiting blood feuds, which often had very destructive consequences. In that light, it is not so barbarous and compared with the modern practice of putting a murderer into prison for a few years at the expense of the taxpayer, then setting him free without compensation for the victim's family, it must be seen as positively enlightened. Nevertheless, the Bible, although it requires compensation for most offences and permits the payment of a ransom in cases of accidental manslaughter, see Exodus 21.30 for instance, demands that no ransom be taken for the life of a murderer and that he be put to death, Numbers 35.31. However, with the coming of Christianity and, as a result of that, written law codes, there is a new element in Anglo-Saxon lawmaking. What is new is that the king, by causing them to be written, makes them his own. Lawgiving is a royal function. It is something that the emperors, through the church, can give kings. It comes with Christianity. A royal book is made, to be stored, it may be, with the books of the Bible. Not inappropriately either, since the Bible too was a repository of laws. Of interest next are the law codes of Whitred, king of Kent, issued in 695, and of Ine, king of Wessex, issued between 688 and 694. Whitred's code begins with the recognition of an important principle. The church shall enjoy immunity from taxation. In return, the clergy are commanded to pray for the king and honour him. The king shall be paid for, and they shall honour him freely and without compulsion. Furthermore, the moonbeard of the church shall be fifty shillings, like the king's. Much of Whitred's code is concerned with the church and Christian practice. Whitred, like his West Saxon contemporary Ine, whose laws owe much to Kent, legislates with the church in the forefront of his mind. For example, regarding Christian marriage we read, Foreigners, if they do not regularise their unions, shall depart from the land with their possessions and with their sins. 
while, for the same offence, men of our country also shall be excluded from the communion of the church without being subject to forfeiture of their goods. Men living in illicit unions are also commanded to turn to a righteous life, repenting of their sins, or they shall be excluded from the communion of the church. There are also fines for both noblemen and commoners for entering illicit unions, 100 shillings and 50 shillings respectively. It seems that Sabbatarianism predates the usual era given for its emergence among the Puritans of the 17th century, since in Whitred's Code there are laws governing work on Sundays with fines for disobedience. Worship of devils is forbidden with fines and forfeiture of possessions as punishment. Other laws deal with priests entering illicit unions or being too drunk to discharge their duties, the granting of the freedom on the altar, procedures and formulas for compurgation in cases involving the clergy, and for commoners accused of crimes related to the clergy, and sundry other laws relating to theft. The laws of Ine, King of Wessex, show a similar concern for the church and Christian observance. Ine declares in the prologue to his law code, I, Ine, by the grace of God, King of Wessex, with the advice and instruction of Senred, my father, of Hede, my bishop, and of Erkenwald, my bishop, and with all my elder men, and the chief counsellors of my people, and with a great concourse of the servants of God as well, have been taking counsel for the salvation of our souls and the security of our realm, in order that just laws and just decrees may be established and ensured throughout our nation, so that no elder man nor subject of ours may from henceforth pervert our decrees. This is the most overtly Christian prologue to an English law code before Alfred's. Interestingly, Ine's law code is only known as an appendix to the law code of Alfred. The earliest manuscript dates from about 925. Ine commands that a child shall be baptised within 30 days. If this is not done, the guardian shall pay 30 shillings compensation. If the child dies before baptism, however, the guardian forfeited all his possessions. There then follows a law governing work on Sunday. If a slave works on Sunday by his Lord's command, he shall become free, and the Lord shall pay a fine of 30 shillings. If a slave work without his master's knowledge, he was punished with the lash, or a fine in lieu of the lash. A free man who worked on Sunday, except by his Lord's command, stood to lose his freedom, or pay 60 shillings fine. However, a priest who offended was required to pay a double fine. Church dues were to be rendered at Martin Mass, November the 11th. Those who failed in this were required to pay a fine of 60 shillings to the king and 12-fold compensation to the church. There are also laws governing the use of the church as a sanctuary by fugitives. Other laws cover compurgation, fines and compensation for crimes and various other matters. It is in King Alfred, however, that we see most clearly the growing influence of Christianity upon English culture and law. H.R. Lowing writes of Christianity under Alfred's reign. The Christian religion provided the most potent binding force known to Western society in the 9th century, and this was particularly true when the ruler was as good a Christian as Alfred. In him, more than in any other rulers of the period, even the great Charles himself, we see the ideal of Christian kingship. 
a successful defender of Christian peoples against pagan onslaught, and also an assiduous supporter of scholarship and of Christian missionary effort. And, in order to make the basis of his authority better appreciated, he drew with great wisdom upon the work of Gregory, the fortitude of Boethius, and the world picture of Osirius, and the theology of St. Augustine of Hippo, from whose works he had sound and workmanlike translations made at his West Saxon court. With Alfred, however, there is more than a concern for the church and Christian practice, but also a commitment to the specific contents of biblical law. Consequently, Alfred's Law Code begins with a long introduction which contains translations into English of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 21-7, the Law of Moses, the Book of the Covenant, Exodus 20-23-23-33, the Golden Rule, Matthew 7-12, along with an account of apostolic history, including translations from the Acts of the Apostles, and an account of the growth of church law as established by ecumenical and English church councils. According to Attenborough, this lengthy introduction has no bearing on Anglo-Saxon law. This is an astonishing statement. Certainly Alfred's introduction had a bearing on his law code. As Alfred says in the prologue to his code, I, King Alfred, have collected these laws and have given orders for copies to be made of many of those which our predecessors observed and which I myself approved of. But many of those I did not approve of I have annulled by the advice of my counsellors, while, in other cases, I have ordered changes to be introduced. Those which were the most just of the laws I found, whether they dated from the time of Ine, my kinsman, or of Offa, king of the Mercians, or of Ethelbert, who was the first king to be baptised in England, these I have collected while rejecting the others. And what criterion should we expect King Alfred, who manifested the ideal of Christian kingship, to use in determining what was just and what should be annulled? Surely Christian principles would play a large part in King Alfred's conception of justice, and therefore affect his choice of which laws were to be retained from times past and which were to be annulled. Alfred says of the Golden Rule, Matthew 7.12, From this one doom, a man may remember that he judge everyone righteously. He need no other doom book. Consequently, as Berman points out, Alfred's laws themselves, although largely consisting of a recapitulation of earlier collections, contain such striking provisions as Doom very evenly. Doom not one doom to the rich, another to the poor, nor doom one to your friend another to your foe. This is very clearly a restatement of Leviticus 19.15, which states, You shall do no injustice in judgment, or you shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbour fairly. This is not to say that the laws of King Alfred collected and retained from previous Anglo-Saxon law codes were purged of all pagan elements. For example, we read, if a slave rapes a slave, castration shall be required as compensation, which can hardly be squared with the Bible. But Alfred's law code generally exhibits a different spirit. Remarkably, F.M. Stenton, like Attenborough before him, considers Alfred's citation of the law of Moses to have no bearing on his law code and claims that it was no more than an attempt to acquaint his subjects with what he regarded 
as a model piece of legislation. There is no trace of any extraneous elements in the text of his own law, which are, indeed, remarkably conservative. Stenton writes, But, on the other hand, Stenton then admits, There are important features in his laws which are not derived from any known source and may be original. Stenton knows of no possible source for these new elements in Alfred's Code and therefore draws the conclusion that they may be original. Anyone familiar with the Bible will have no difficulty in recognising the features of which Stenton speaks. They include, writes Stenton, provisions protecting the weaker members of society against oppression, limiting the ancient custom of blood feud, and emphasising the duty of man to his Lord. Given Alfred's commitment to the Christian religion, is it not reasonable, indeed necessary, to conclude that these new enlightened elements in his code were the result of the influence of Christianity and biblical law upon Alfred's own thinking? As Wallace Handrell says, to assemble the folk law and reissue them as their own had seemed an enhancement of kingship to the Carolingians. It was a legislative function with political overtones. Alfred, however, did more than this. To revise and reissue his predecessor's laws as his own was nothing new, but his remarkable prologue suggests something more. Stenton is nearer the mark when he adds, A religious king, whose own life had once depended on the loyalty of his men, might be expected to legislate in this spirit, and these provision may be added to the evidence of Alfred's character, which is supplied in his writings. What is the reason for this myopia when it comes to understanding the influence of Christianity on Western culture? Attenborough's and Stenton's failure to identify the influence of biblical law upon Alfred's code bears out R.J. Rushdini's comment that a very real defect of scholars has been their ignorance of biblical law. As a result, much has been called pagan, which was, in reality, biblical. Certainly, Alfred's translation of the laws of Moses was meant to acquaint his subjects with a model piece of legislation, as Stenton argues, but, as Wallace Handrell, referring to Stenton's argument, points out, it implies another, to link to his own legislation, with that of the Bible, and, by linking it, to accept the Bible as valid moral law. With modifications, he accepts the Mosaic law of Exodus as current, and, by an excerpt from St. Matthew, he demonstrates that Christ had also accepted it as current and valid. The righteous man, says Alfred, needs no other law book. The ethic of the Decalogue was an acceptable basis for all law. But men were not righteous. They did need another law, and Alfred shows how, since the critical event of the baptism of Ethelbert, such law has been provided for the English people. He in turn does what he can, The collection of laws that he makes for them is what he would probably have called Christian law. Alfred's law code contains many of the laws of his predecessors, with some modifications. Much of the code is concerned with compensation to victims for injuries, either accidental or criminal in nature. Compensation is specified for the life of a slain man, his verdigold, or blood price, which, though unbiblical in cases of murder, represented a considerable improvement on the blood feud that was likely to follow without it, and for this reason it was supported actively by the church. 
There are also laws concerning the protection of church property and respect for church law. Many of Alfred's laws are pagan in origin, it is true, setting forth penalties that are not consistent with biblical law. But the code generally is subject to a Christianizing influence, which, as we have seen, made Alfred's laws more just and concerned with issues and emphases that were derived from the Bible. Furthermore, Stenton observes that Alfred's law code has a significance in general history which is entirely independent of its subject matter. In his preface, Alfred gives himself no higher title than King of the West Saxons, and he names his kinsman, Ine, first among the three kings whose work had influenced his own. But the names of Offa and Ethelbert which follow in the list imply that Alfred's code was intended to cover not only Wessex, but Kent and English Mercia. It thus becomes important evidence of the new political unity forced upon the various English peoples by the struggle against the Danes. Even without this adventitious interest, it would still be a landmark in English legal history. It appeared at the end of a century which no English king had issued laws. Everywhere in Western Europe, kings were ceasing to exercise the legislative powers which traditionally belonged to their office. In England alone, through Alfred's example, the tradition was maintained to be inherited by each of the two foreign kings who acquired the English throne in the 11th century. This is significant for our understanding of the influence that Christianity had on the development of English common law. The common law principles of justice that were applied in later centuries, as we have seen, had roots going back before the Norman conquest. These common law roots go back to the ancient customs and laws of the people of England, and it is in Alfred's law code that we first find law being made for all of Anglo-Saxon England. But Alfred left more than just laws for the Anglo-Saxons in England. In 878, Alfred defeated the Danish king, Guthrum. The terms of the surrender stipulated not only that Guthrum withdraw from Alfred's kingdom, but that he and his leading men be baptised also. In the laws agreed upon and enacted by Alfred and Guthrum, the commitment to love one God and zealously renounce all heathen practices stands first. The code goes on to state, If anyone offends against the Christian religion or honours heathen practices by word or deed, he shall pay either wergeld or fine or laslet, the fine incurred by a breach of the law, according to the nature of the offence. Failure to pay tithes is punished with fines. There are also Sabbatarian laws, as with Whitred, Ine, and Alfred. For example, if anyone proceeds to bargain on a Sunday, he shall forfeit the goods and twelve oars and thirty shillings in an English district. This law code testifies to the Christian shadow that Alfred cast not only over Anglo-Saxon England, but also over those territories under the rule of the Danes. The following laws are the last in the code. I have added in square brackets references to biblical laws which deal with the same issues. 11. If wizards or sorcerers, Exodus 22.18, Leviticus 20.27, Deuteronomy 18.10-13, perjurers, Exodus 23.1, Deuteronomy 19.16-19, or they who secretly compass death, Exodus 21.12-14, Leviticus 24.17, or vile, polluted, notorious prostitutes, Leviticus 19.29, 
Deuteronomy 22, 20 to 21, be met with anywhere in the country, they shall be driven from the land, and the nation shall be purified. Otherwise, they shall be utterly destroyed in the land, unless they cease from their wickedness and make amends to the utmost of their ability. 12. If any attempt is made to deprive in any wise a man in orders, or a stranger, of either his goods or his life, Exodus 22, 21-24, Deuteronomy 24, 17, the king, or the earl of the province, in which such a deed is done, and the bishop of the diocese, shall act as his kinsmen and protectors, unless he has some other, Luke 10, 30-37, and such compensation as is due shall be promptly paid to Christ, Deuteronomy 21, 1-9, and the king, according to the nature of the offence, or the king within whose dominions the deed is done, shall avenge it to the uttermost. The laws and ordinances of Edward the Elder, circa 900-925, and of Ethelstan, circa 925-939, the first king to exercise direct rule over all England, including the Danes, similarly reflects the influence of Christianity. The first clause in I, Ethelstan, reads, I, King Ethelstan, with the advice of Archbishop Wolfhelm, and my other bishops also, inform the reeve in every borough, and pray you in the name of God, and of all his saints, and command you also by my friendship, that, in the first place, ye render tithes of my own property, both in livestock and in yearly fruits of the earth, measuring, counting, and weighing them in accordance with the strictest accuracy. And the bishops shall do the same with their own property, and my eldermen, and my reeves likewise. He goes on to say, Let us remember how Jacob the patriarch declared, Decimas et hostias pacificas offeram tibi. Tithes and animal sacrifices, peace offerings I shall give to you. And how Moses declared in God's law, Decimas et primitas non tardabis offeri domino. You shall not be slow to offer tithes and firstfruits to the Lord. Furthermore, we are told that it behoves us to remember how terrible is the declaration stated in the books. If ye are not willing to render tithes to God, he will deprive us of the nine remaining parts when we least expect it, and, moreover, we shall have sinned also. Another piece of legislation from Anglo-Saxon law codes of interest for our purposes is Ethelstan's ordinance relating to charities. I, King Ethelstan, with the advice of Wulfhelm, my archbishop, and of all my other bishops and ecclesiastics, for the forgiveness of my sins, make known to all my reeves within my kingdom that it is my wish that you shall always provide a destitute Englishman with food, if you have such an one in your district, or if you find one elsewhere. 1. From two of my rents he shall be supplied with an amber of meal, a shank of bacon, or a ram worth fourpence every month, and clothes for twelve months annually. And I desire you to make free annually one man who has been reduced to penal slavery, and all this shall be done for the loving kindness of God, and for the love you bear me, with the cognizance of the bishop in whose diocese the gift is made. 2. And if the reeve neglects to do this, he shall pay thirty shillings compensation, and the money shall be divided, with the cognizance of the bishop, among the poor who are on the estate where this remains unfulfilled. During the century before the Norman Conquest, the kings of England continued to issue law codes, and these codes evidence the continuing influence of Christianity 
and of the Church upon them. Of particular importance are the law codes of Knut, which, along with other law codes going back to Alfred and Ine, were the main sources for determining English law after the Norman Conquest, when the English common law system was beginning to take shape. Loin, commenting on this period, states that In the legislative field, there is an indication of the development of relationships between growing state and church, strongly reminiscent of continental development during the Carolingian period. Indeed, owing to the strength and tenacity of the West Saxon monarchy in the 10th and 11th centuries, theocracy in England was even more fully extended and survived later. The writings of homilists in the late 10th and early 11th centuries bear out this conclusion. In later Anglo-Saxon England, ideas of Christian kingship and the sight of that kingship in action illustrate the closer interdependence of the church as an institution and the state. The law codes issued by the kings themselves also bear out the same conclusion. In 8 Ethelred 2.1, for instance, we read, For a Christian king is Christ's deputy among the Christian people, and he must avenge with the utmost diligence offences against Christ. The growing influence of Christianity and of biblical law on Ethelred's law codes is very strong. 6 Ethelred 28.2 states, Greed, gluttony, and intemperance, frauds and various breaches of the law, violations of marriage and of holy orders, breaches of festivals and of feasts, sacrilege and misdeeds of many kinds. The list clearly shows the influence that the Bible was exerting upon Anglo-Saxon law codes at this time. The next clause but one states the matter succinctly. God's law shall henceforth be zealously cherished in word and deed. Then God will forthwith be gracious towards this people. Significantly, Along with this concern for the proper observance of God's law, there is a concern for the improvement of the coinage. Clause 32 reads, Public security shall be promoted in such a way as shall be best for the householder and worst for the thief. Number one, and the coinage shall be improved by having one currency, free from all adulteration, throughout all the country. Number two, and weights and measures shall be corrected with all diligence and an end put to all unjust practices. The concern for God's law and a sound, honest monetary system clearly go hand in hand, the latter being the natural result of a sincere desire to obey God's law. The biblical law on just weights and measures are given in Leviticus 19.35-37 and Deuteronomy 25.13-16. Many more citations from Ethelred's law codes could be given to demonstrate this concern for the upholding of God's law. There is simply not the space here to do justice to the point. In citing those laws that reflect directly the content of biblical law, it is difficult sometimes to know where to stop. The following are a good example. I have added in square brackets references to the biblical texts. 42. And likewise, we desire earnestly to exhort all our friends, as there is need for us to do frequently, to take thought diligently for themselves and eagerly to turn from sins, and to restrain other men from wrongdoing, and frequently and often to have in mind what is of supreme importance for men to remember, namely, that they should have a right belief in the true God, who is the ruler and maker of all created things, and that they should duly keep the true Christian faith, diligently obey their spiritual teachers, 
and zealously follow the precepts and ordinances of God, and that they should diligently maintain the security and sanctity of the churches of God everywhere, and frequently visit them with candles and offerings, and themselves they are earnestly pray to God. 43. And that every year they should duly render their ecclesiastical dues. Leviticus 27.30, Numbers 18.24 and 28, Deuteronomy 14.22, and duly observe festivals and feasts, Deuteronomy 16.16. 44. And that they should diligently abstain from marketings and public assemblies on Sundays, Exodus 20.8-13. 45. And that they should always protect and honour the servants of God, 1 Timothy 5.17-19. 46. And that they should comfort and feed the poor. Exodus 23.11, Leviticus 19.9-10, Deuteronomy 24.14-15. 47. And that they should not be constantly oppressing the widow and the orphan, but that they should diligently cheer them. Exodus 22.22-24, Deuteronomy 10.18-19, 14.28-29, 14, 26, 12, 27, 19, 48, that they should not vex or oppress strangers and men come from afar. Exodus 22, 21, 23, 3, 6, Leviticus 19, 33 to 34, Deuteronomy 10, 18 and 19, 14, 28 to 29, 16, 11, 14, 26, 12, 27, 19, 49, and that they should not excel in offering injustice to other men, but that every man should, to the best of his ability, show the justice to others that he desires should be shown to him, which is a very just rule. Exodus 23, 2-6, Leviticus 19-15, Deuteronomy 1-17, 16-18-20, Matthew 7-12, compare 7-2. 50. And he who henceforth anywhere violates the just decrees of God or of men shall render full compensation in whatever way is fitting, whether by making the amends required by ecclesiastical authority or by paying the penalty demanded by the secular law. Exodus 22, 1-15, etc. One last citation from the laws of Ethelred will sum the whole matter up. And constant thought shall be taken in every way how best to determine what is advisable for the public good, and how best to promote true Christianity and to suppress with all diligence every injustice. Number one, for it is only by the suppression of injustice and the love of righteousness in matters both religious and secular that any improvement shall be obtained in the condition of the country. The laws of King Knut, which largely reenact the laws of Edgar and Ethelred, but which are more comprehensive, drawing material from homilies and penitentials as well as older laws, show the same concern for the law of God and the upholding of the Christian religion. In To Knut we read, This is further the secular ordinance, which, by the advice of my counsellors, I desire should be observed over all England. 1. The provision is that I desire that justice be promoted and every injustice zealously suppressed that every illegality be rooted up and eradicated from this land with the utmost diligence and the law of God promoted. 1. And henceforth all men, both poor and rich, shall be regarded as entitled to the benefit of the law 
and just decisions shall be pronounced on their behalf. 2. And we enjoin that, even if anyone sins and commits grievous crime, the punishment shall be ordered as shall be justifiable in the sight of God and acceptable in the eyes of men. 2a. And he who has authority to give judgment shall consider very earnestly what he himself desires when he says thus, And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive them that trespass against us. 1. And we forbid the practice of condemning Christian people to death for very trivial offences. On the contrary, merciful punishment shall be determined upon for the public good, and the handiwork of God, and the purchase which he made at a great price, shall not be destroyed for trivial offences. 3. We forbid the all-too-prevalent practice of selling Christian people out of the country, and especially of conveying them into heathen lands, but care shall be zealously taken that the souls that Christ bought with his life be not destroyed. 4. And we enjoin that the purification of the land in every part shall be diligently undertaken, and that evil deeds shall everywhere be put an end to. The code goes on to specify how the land is to be purified. Wizards, sorcerers, murderers and prostitutes are to be driven from the land unless they repent. Likewise, apostates are to be driven out or else make amends. Thieves and robbers are to be made an end of unless they desist. Heathen practices, for example, witchcraft, worship of idols and heathen gods, sun, moon, fire, trees, etc. are forbidden. Perjurers and adulterers are to make amends or depart from the land, along with hypocrites, liars and robbers who incur the wrath of God. Again, there are laws requiring the reform and improvement of the coinage. False weights and measures are to be corrected diligently and thought shall be diligently taken in every way how best to determine what is advisable for the public good and how best to promote true Christianity and diligently suppress every injustice. Many other laws show the influence of Christianity also, including laws dealing with incest, adultery, payment of ecclesiastical dues, rape, bigamy, robbery, excommunicated persons, etc. The code ends with the following words. Now, I earnestly entreat all men and command them, in the name of God, to submit in their inmost hearts to their Lord, and often and frequently consider what they ought to do and what they ought to forego. 1. There is great need for us all to love God and to follow God's law and zealously to obey our spiritual teachers. 1a. For it is their duty to lead us forth to the judgments where God shall judge each man according to the works which he has wrought. 2. And blessed is the shepherd who then may gladly lead his flock into the kingdom of God and the joy of heaven because of the works which they have wrought. 2a. And well it is for the flock which follows the shepherd who delivers them from the devils and wins them for God. 3. Let us all then, with humble heart, be zealous in pleasing our Lord aright, and henceforth, by doing what is right, always zealously guard ourselves from the hot fire which surges in hell. 4. And likewise teachers and spiritual messengers shall do what is right and for the well-being of all men they shall frequently inculcate spiritual duties. 4a. And everyone who has discernment shall earnestly give heed to them, and everyone, for his own well-being, 
shall keep fast in his mind their spiritual instruction. 4b. And every man, for the honour of his Lord, shall always gladly do his utmost by word and by work, and by deed for the furtherance of what is good. Then shall God be the more ready to help us. 5. May the name of God be eternally blessed, and to him be praise and glory and honour for ever and ever. Amen. 6. God Almighty have mercy upon us all, as his will may be. Amen. It is quite clear that during the Anglo-Saxon period, the influence of Christianity in general was strong and that biblical concepts of justice, morality and mercy were being integrated into the law codes and treaties of kings. Although the law codes contain much customary law, surviving from pagan times in traditional forms, they were increasingly subjected to a strong Christianizing influence. We must now note another aspect of the influence that Christianity had on Anglo-Saxon society, which was of the utmost importance for the development of English law. Christianity has a moral ethic which is individualistic. Each person stands before God on the basis of his own conduct, on the moral responsibility that he bears for his actions as an individual does not materially affect the family, tribe or group to which he belongs. Liability before the law is individual, not corporate. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sins. Deuteronomy 24.16 In contrast, Anglo-Saxon society was much less individualistic in this sense, and more importance was placed upon the family group. As a result, the individualistic sense of morality was not a predominant feature of Anglo-Saxon society and the group was subject to legal liability. Under the influence of Christianity, all this changed. Responsibility slowly shifted from the group as a whole to the person who committed the act and the church, and eventually the law, judged the act on the basis of the individual's moral responsibility. The influence of the Christian religion on Anglo-Saxon law and society and its significance for the development of Western law was therefore of the greatest importance. Of the Anglo-Saxon period, Harold Berman writes, Christianity broke the fiction of the immutability of the folk law. Gradually, between the 6th and the 11th centuries, Germanic law, with its overwhelming biases of sex, class, race and age, was affected by the Christian doctrine of the fundamental equality of all persons before God. Women and man, slave and free, poor and rich, child and adult. These beliefs had an ameliorating effect on the position of women and slaves and on the protection of the poor and helpless. Also, Christianity had an important effect on judicial proofs by oaths, since the swearing of oaths began to take Christian forms and was supported by ecclesiastical sanctions. Oaths were administered by priests in churches, at altars, on relics, and through appeals to divine sanctions against falsehood, and false swearing was subject to discipline through ecclesiastical penances. Indeed, oaths took a place alongside ordeals as a principal mode of trial. The church added the risk of offending God by perjury, and the duty, if one did perjure himself, to confess the sin to his priest and be subjected to penitential discipline. Moreover, not only the false swearing of oaths, but also all other obstructions of justice were considered to be sins subject to penitential discipline. 
For example, persistence in blood fruit after a reasonable offer of satisfaction was an offence against God, which was to be confessed to a priest and atoned for by fasting and other forms of penance. Christianity also had political consequences since it served to transform the ruler from a chief, dux, into a king, rex. The king became the head of an empire, unifying the various tribes under his leadership and defeating the heathen invaders in the name of Christ. This was so in Europe with Charlemagne and also in England with Alfred. Berman writes that Christianity also enhanced the role of kingship in the development of the folklore during the period prior to the late 11th century, and especially the king's responsibility to see that tribal justice was tempered with mercy and that the poor and helpless were protected against the rich and powerful. In the 8th, 9th, 10th and 11th centuries, Frankish and Anglo-Saxon kings were considered to be appointed by God to act as judges in extraordinary cases. As they moved about their realms, they heard cases for mercy's sake, cases of widows or orphans, or men who had no families to protect them, or no lords, cases of the very worst crimes for which no money payment could make satisfaction. This was part of their spiritual jurisdictions as patriarchs of their people. According to Harold Berman, Germanic folklore does not fit into any model or archetype of customary law because of the influence that Christianity exerted upon it. As Christianity spread, it challenged the ultimate sanctity of custom and of kinship, lordship and kingship relations as well as the sanctity of nature exhibited, for example, in trial by ordeal. Christianity did not deny their sanctity altogether, however. Indeed, writes Berman, the Church actually supported the sacral institutions and values of the folk, including the ordeals. It challenged their ultimate sanctity, however, by establishing a higher realm of God's law and life eternal. The result was that life was split into the two realms of the eternal and the temporal, the sacred and the secular. Yet, although this split led to the depreciating of the temporal realm, Berman claims that it did not otherwise directly affect it. Rather, social life was indirectly affected in important ways. The basic structure of the folklore remained unaltered, but many of its particular features were strongly influenced by Christian beliefs. The influence of Christianity upon Anglo-Saxon society began with the conversion of Ethelbert. Prior to this, Anglo-Saxon law was unwritten customary law. With the kings converted to the Christian religion they began, with the advice and counsel of the clergy, to issue law codes that, although drawing largely on custom and tradition and form, evidenced the growing influence of Christian ideals and principles. With the revival of learning under Alfred, this process took a leap forward, and the content of biblical law was set forth to the people as the ideal of true justice, true justice to be imitated. With Alfred, there was also an attempt to legislate for the whole kingdom and to impose a degree of uniformity on English law. Although the law codes issued by the Anglo-Saxon kings were not comprehensive, and therefore England was still governed to a large extent by unwritten customary law, the precedent set by Alfred was followed by his successors, including Knut, 1016 to 1035, whose laws, along with the dooms of Alfred, were the main sources of old English law for writers after the Norman Conquest. 
The effect of Christianity on law and customs in England prior to the Norman Conquest was, therefore, prodigious. It played a leading role in forming and informing the cultural matrix out of which the common law later emerged. It is to the development of that common law system that we shall now turn.